The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Ken, I've really been impressed with the shorts we've been watching. When I look at the shorts that were nominated for the Oscar last year, they seem less like warm-ups for doing a feature work and more like a real art form in themselves. Yeah, me too. And I think one of the factors for me is just the economy of the filmmaking. I mean, being able to cut out all the fat, make them incredibly lean in terms of telling the story in kind of the most direct, but yet powerful way possible. Case in point is the Martha Mitchell effect. That film covers so much ground in less than 40 minutes that you feel like you've learned this entire almost underground history of Watergate by the end of it. It's also a great character study and I think a comment on our contemporary society as well. You can see the Martha Mitchell effect now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, directors of The Janes. Here's how Emma described the film. The Janes is about a group of women in Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s that ran an underground abortion service before it was legal in the United States. The Janes had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival and is screened at festivals widely throughout the United States and the world. Tia Lesson is an Academy Award-nominated director. Her films include Trouble the Water, directed with Carl Deal, which won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize and the Gotham Film Award and was nominated for an Oscar. She also directed and produced Citizen Coke with Carl Deal and was a producer of the Palm d'Or-winning Fahrenheit 911, the Academy Award-winning Bowling for Columbine, and the Grammy-winning No Direction Home, Bob Dylan. Emma Pildes is a multiple Emmy-nominated filmmaker. Her producing credits include Spielberg, Jane Fonda in Five Acts, and Very Ralph, all for HBO documentary films. The Janes is her feature documentary directorial debut. The Janes are a remarkable group of women, and The Janes is also a really wonderful historical documentary, which has clear contemporary of-the-moment ramifications in a post-Supreme Court Dobbs decision, end of Roe v. Wade world. What I love about the film is that it's very specific to Chicago and all the elements, political, social, cultural, religious, swirling around Chicago in this period, mostly the 60s up until the early 70s. But it's also a story that resonates with what was going on throughout the United States at this time period as well. So it's both specific and universal. And when you combine those factors, it really is a terrific film. One of my favorite parts of the film is the interviews. This is something I don't think we've talked a whole lot about on this podcast, but there really is an art of the interview, and Tia and Emma are exemplars of that art. The film starts with an amazing interview, and all throughout, up until the end, it's one great revelatory interview after another. Both from the interviews and from the archival, there are so many things that I learned about this time period, about the issue of abortion and women's health that I really had no idea about. Of course, the timing of the film's release coming out when Supreme Court Justice Alito's draft opinion in the Dobbs case was leaked to the press, and then the court's subsequent overturning of Roe v. Wade makes this film essential viewing. So I highly recommend that you see the film, which can be seen now on HBO and HBO Max. 
And if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, directors of The Janes. Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks so much, Ken. Happy to be with you. Thank you for being here and congratulations on the Janes. I'm really eager to talk to you about the film. There's so much here, so much that I didn't know, and it's incredibly well made. So congratulations to you. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning of the film. The film begins with what I would describe as a cold open, a middle-aged white woman who's not identified at this point in a sort of typical setting that we would see for a talking head interview. It looks like maybe a living room begins. And she says, I had no other options. I wanted it over with, and I didn't care how it was done. The it is not described in those sentences, but then she goes on to describe her experience of having an illegal abortion in Chicago. It's awful, it's harrowing, and it's America, the way things were for a long time in just about every state. Let's talk about this opening from your perspective as the filmmakers. The delivery is straight ahead. It's matter of fact, kind of just the facts, ma'am. And the filmmaking is unadorned. There's some accompanying archival material, but no music at this point. Basically, no bells and whistles. And yet, because of the information being conveyed and the implications of this woman's story, I think what plays on us is if she had to endure this, how many other women had to as well? So it's simple, but it's incredibly powerful and poignant. How did you land on this opening? This is Tia. This interview was extraordinary. It was jarring to hear her speak so vividly as if it had happened yesterday and it was 50 years ago, having gone through this harrowing experience for simple medical care, the terror that she experienced. And yet against that her determination to get help. She had a young daughter at home, a disabled mother. We didn't put that in the film, but she knew that she could die, resorting to the mob to get an abortion. But she nonetheless went through with it. I think she felt so desperate. She had no other choice. And it seemed to us a perfect way to contrast the Janes and what the Janes were about, this network of women who banded together to offer up something different from the mob or from the other terrible options that existed during that pre-Roe era. And in fact, Dory, you know, makes an appearance later on in the film because she not only had this mob abortion, but later we learn that she had another abortion. And by that time she was able to find the Janes and she had an altogether different experience. It was humane. It was decent. She didn't fear for her life and she wasn't injured and she was able to get health care that she needed and move on. And I think to this day, she's grateful. So for us, this was a powerful way to look at the work of this network of women and what the alternative was. And did you consider any other openings or once you went back and looked at this interview, it really jumped out at you? I mean, you always consider a lot. <laughs> you know, a lot. <laughs> I think sometimes you spend as much time with the beginning and ending of a film in the edit room as you do with the rest, you know, because look, getting into a film about abortion 
getting into a documentary of any kind is hard. You want to engage a viewer, you want to bring them in on the journey, and especially on the topic of abortion. It's a hard one and one that most people don't necessarily choose for a date night. So we knew that Dory was extraordinary compelling. And how did we know that? Because we were compelled so much by her and we felt like we didn't have to goose it up with music or bells and whistles, as you say. Her testimony unadorned was enough to set the stage for this story. Absolutely. It really works. And there are many of us who think there's nothing more compelling than just an interview. The first time we meet a Jane is, I believe, Judith Arcana. And she sets the stage by saying that in the state of Illinois and most of the rest of the nation, abortion was illegal. It was simply a crime. I believe Judith is also a relative of yours. Is that right, Emma? Yes. So I have a family connection to the story. My dad is the radical lawyer in the film, and his first wife is Judith. And if everybody can keep this straight, because we can barely keep it straight, um, my brother, who's my half-brother, is also a producer on the film and a producer in his own right and was the child of our father and Judith. And in a way, as a character in the film, Judith talks about after the one time that the service was busted, that she came home in the early morning hours and nursed Daniel, which is a very moving moment of how much these women put on the line and motherhood and all the good and the bad in the world. It's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to ask that question toward the yeah. end because that's when she brings it up near the end of the movie. <laughs> but when I wrote the question, I had no idea that you were connected through this yeah. family connection. So I was just going to ask you too, you both, as women filmmakers, could you imagine a male filmmaker? Because I had a hard time picturing it, having that kind of a conversation in which the connection between motherhood and abortion is made. And she feels so comfortable talking to you about it. Now hearing that there's this family connection, it's like, no, I can't imagine anyone else mm -hmm. making this film and telling her story. Mm -hmm. But can you talk about, Emma, when you first heard about the Janes from your dad, presumably? Yeah, and it was a story in my house growing up. It was known family lore. And amongst other stories, I have a radical lawyer for, for a father, you know, there's many stories. This is an extraordinary one, of course. And it was really Daniel who had the foresight when Trump got into office to bring this out of our own backyard and start developing it because I think he saw that these women's story could be of use, that they could be of use again. I mean, they were already of use to women in the late 60s and early 70s for all the incredible work that they did saving women's lives, which is really how we see it. But that giving a platform to them, letting them bear witness, getting the story out far and wide, which surprisingly or unsurprisingly, a lot of people don't know this story. Women's history often gets buried, especially heroic figures in women's history. So being able to get it out 
into the world at a time when Trump was in office and already starting to pack the courts. And of course, there's been things happening on the state level and people have been chipping away at abortion rights since Roe, since the Hyde Amendment passed like just a couple of years after Roe. So they've been hard at work for a very, very, very long time. But when Trump got into office and started packing the courts, things got scary. A lot of things got scary. And this was one of them. I think it was something we always knew, but became of greater importance. It became dire. It felt dire to get this out. And thanks to HBO, we were able to do that. And Tia, how did you get involved? When did you pair up with Emma? Emma approached me in the fall of 2018, around the time that Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed by the Senate. And the writing was on the wall, as Emma said. It was clear to anyone who was watching that Roe was not long for this world. It was just a matter of time before the court returned it. And nothing really had changed in this country. What changed was the composition of the court, that they were allowed to do this was only because Trump was able to confirm three nominees and change things dramatically. But I had been a, you know, abortion rights activist long before even my filmmaking career. In my 20s, 1989, I got arrested in front of the Supreme Court when the Webster case was being heard. It was a civil disobedience. We sat down in front of the court in protest of the threatened removal of public funding from abortion care. I felt like I had put my body on the line. Of course, when I heard about the chains, I realized it's a group of women who really put themselves on the line. But speaking of your observation about motherhood and abortion being part of the same cycle of life, really, I'm a person with a uterus. I've experienced both. I nursed a child for three years and I'm a mother. And a decade before that, I had an abortion. And Those two things are both in my body or both part of my lived experience. That's true. I think probably for the majority of people who have abortions, they have children already. I think there's a myth that it's young people, it's irresponsible people, it's teenagers. It's actually people who already have children and have made a choice for whatever reason, financial, physical, emotional to terminate the pregnancy. And with the Janes, we saw that this was a a group of people committed to making sure that other women had that ability to make those decisions for themselves. Many of them had children. Many of the Janes who were helping women get abortions every single day would come home to a house full of kids. And that wasn't in contradictory in their lives. It was absolutely seamless. In fact, I think one of them called abortion the very first parenting decision they made. This was part of the fabric of their lives. And many of the Janes had themselves had abortions. Many of them had themselves children, were babysitting children, were in the process of adopting children, were undergoing infertility treatments. And many of them were single women who had no interest in ever having children. So it was like the whole spectrum of parenthood. Yeah, that really comes through in watching the film. You do get that whole spectrum, and that begs the question of, this is many years later now, how did you go about finding the Janes? And then some are identified by their full names, some by just their first names. What was the process of deciding with each woman how they're going to be identified in the film? Finding them wasn't terribly difficult because of the access that we had. They didn't all come on board at once, but a lot of them did. You know, these are very smart, savvy women activists. So they saw the value. It was very clear to them. It was brave, but these are brave women. So many of them came on board. Some of them were a little bit more reticent. 
Some of them wanted to make sure that we were on the up and up, that we were going to do right by the story, which is completely reasonable. So waited until some of the initial interviews were done and, and talked amongst themselves and then came around. There was also COVID concerns. We made this film in the middle of a pandemic. But for the most part, everybody came aboard that we approached. And as far as identifying them, that was something we spoke to them about way later at the end. Agency is obviously a very important theme to this film, personal agency. And because of the divisive nature of the topic, we wanted to make sure that each person had the initial decision to contribute or not contribute. And then beyond that, the decision whether to identify themselves. And it's very unconventional to have some subjects with first names, some subjects with last names, some subjects with first name and a first initial. But it was further to our ethos of the film that we'd spent the time to go to each and every one of them and ask them what they wanted and let them know what other people were doing so they had a greater context. And whatever that decision was, whatever it looked like, that's what we would do. That was of the utmost importance to us beyond consistency of lower thirds. Yeah, I really appreciated it because it did give a sense that everyone has their own relationship to their own story mm -hmm. and to what the passage of time means in terms of their vulnerability, yeah. how they want to be presented, what they want to be associated with. So for me, it was extremely effective and affecting and again, contributed to this notion that the spectrum is extremely wide here. You know, many of them were telling this story for the very first time, not just the first time on camera, but the first time, period. Some of them hadn't told their family. They were young women at the time, most of them, some were in their 30s, 20s, and most of them, I think their parents had passed because they're women in their 80s, but they had to tell their siblings. They had to come out to friends. So that was a consideration. And also, of course, this was a legal activity they were involved in, potentially subject still to penalties to this day. So there were so many considerations and it was their decision to make. Early in the film, we see black and white footage of people being arrested, presumably people who were being hauled in by the police for maybe having an illegal abortion or performing one. We don't know exactly. And some of them are covering up their faces. And this footage actually reminded me a lot of the black and white footage of LGBTQ people who were arrested mm. in the 50s and 60s, presumably for soliciting or performing sex acts. And it really captures the shaming aspect of this, the public mm -hmm. humiliation. Can, can you talk about this footage a bit and tell us where you got it and you know why it was shot in the first place? It's so interesting that you had that same reaction to it as I did. This is Tia. The first time I saw the raid footage, I had the very same feeling that I'd seen this before, but in the context of the police raids of gay bars in the 50s and 60s. And men mostly walking out with their hands over their faces as they were doing the perp walk. And I think what's extraordinary about this footage of these women and abortion providers being rounded up at that same time is I had never seen that footage before. This was actually quite commonplace. Abortion was illegal. People were arrested. This was not just a implied threat. This was actually happening. These prosecutions and roundups 
all throughout the country. We found this footage in local archives in different cities throughout the country. It wasn't the broadcast networks that had this footage. It was local news, television news collections, mostly. And every single bit of footage is the real thing. We didn't cheat it with any other arrest. And it's really jarring. You see these women being pranced in front of the police precincts. You see the equipment being hauled out of the clinics. And you see the stigma attached to this and the consequences for many people's lives. So it felt very important for us to set up the story this way because these were the stakes. People and actually our characters, the Janes, ultimately faced 110 years in prison each for multiple counts of conspiracy to commit abortion. That's what they called it. And these were felonies. So it could have landed them in jail for a very long time. In addition to this footage that I had no idea existed, I mean, there's many things that I learned from the film. Another one was the existence of these septic abortion wards in hospitals. Can you talk about what these were and the stigma that was probably attached to women who ended up there? That was a big, horrifying revelation for Tia and I as well. When you learn cold, hard facts like that, it's affecting in a different way. We have so many loose notions and ideas about that time in this country and what women went through. And really the objective of this film is to bring to light those kinds of cold, hard facts uh, among other objectives. But that was a big one for us. The one that we focused on is in Cook County Hospital in Chicago, because that's where our story is. But they were in major cities across the United States. In Cook County, it was a 40-bed ward that was full all of the time for women that came or were dumped at the door of Cook County with botched abortions, whether they be self-inflicted or back alley abortions from unscrupulous practitioners. We interviewed a doctor that was doing his rounds. He was very young at the time in the ward. He would go from bed to bed with drip antibiotics. And he said he called the morgue once a week because somebody had died on the ward. These were very sick, septic because of these abortions, women. He described the ward as eerily quiet, there was no family visiting them, and everyone was so ill that there was no chatter. So it's an incredibly haunting, difficult idea that these wards existed. It's a difficult part of the film that we felt was very important sort of early on in the film to include, and it's a hard thing to take in, not to ruin anything. But at the end of the film, we have a card that says that once Roe passed, within about a year, these wards became obsolete because they weren't needed anymore. So the, the most important notion of all of this is that we created these wards with the laws that we have in place. And our greatest fear is that we're heading back that way. And before long, these wards are going to have to exist again. There's a story told by one of the Janes, Eileen, who tells the story before she was in the Janes, when she was in college, of helping a hallmate who's bleeding from an illegal abortion. And Eileen says it was scary and it seemed so wrong that this was going on. Can you talk about how this kind of mixture of fear and righteous anger contributed to the motivation of the women who started Jane? Yeah, and these were Midwestern women who didn't just want to talk about their outrage. They wanted to do something about it. You know, they had signed petitions. They'd gone to meetings. They wanted to save people's lives. They understood 
that women were dying and that women who are forced to have children against their will, their whole lives were upended by that. So they came together in a spirit of resistance. It wasn't a fear. They probably were scared. They, in fact, were scared of what the consequences to them would be. But I think they were really united by a common commitment to do the right thing and just take matters into their own hands and not wait for some savior to come along. They were the change they wanted. I think we both found that really uplifting. And even in this moment, that is so scary right now in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. We hope that people can find some resolve and some inspiration from the story of these women coming together to make a difference. Their courage just comes through time and time again in the film. The other thing is their sense of humor. For sure. They were, they were, I think Em and I really leaned into these light moments, this levity at times. They were serious about their task at hand, but they didn't take themselves all that seriously. And there are some light moments that were really unexpected given what they were doing day in and day out. But we appreciated that. It's part of the many layers of storytelling. And we wanted to bring out some of the spirit, the spirit of their personalities, and also take the edge off a little bit on some of the tragedy. Speaking to that, the dynamic between the women and quote unquote, Mike, who is this guy, <laughs> you're laughing, Emma's laughing. It's, that's the thing about Mike is you can't even utter his name or think about him without laughing. He's this guy who used to work construction, got hooked up with the mob, and he was assisting a surgeon in Detroit who taught him how to do illegal abortion. So he took over this practice, if you will. And he's the one that one of the Jane co-founders, Heather Booth, contacts and makes a deal with him to do these abortions. Mike is quite a character. How did you make contact with him? And what was that interview like? <laughs> Tia did that interview, so maybe she wants to speak to that. But I can say that the way we found him was that Jody, who is one of the many extraordinary Janes in our film, and I would say a bit of a leader in the group, Mike was hanging around Jody's house. This was a homegrown organization. And so Mike was a part of the family. He was around, they were smoking dope, they were hanging out, they were socializing, they were doing their thing. And Jody's daughters, who were incredibly supportive of this film, Jody's passed away, but her daughters, actually one of her daughters passed away during the making of the film as well. But they were incredibly supportive initially and kept some contact with Mike, who was very beloved to them and was sort of a member of the family. They helped us connect with Mike and helped, I don't know if convince is the right word, but helped lead the way for him to sit for this interview and assured him that we were on the up and up and that we were doing right by this. You know, these women, there's a very symbiotic relationship between Mike and the women. He was an unexpected person to be <laughs> doing these abortions. He was a street kid from Ukrainian village in Chicago. And as you said, hooked up with the mob, was a tuck pointer, a bricklayer, construction worker. But he had something in him where he was good at this and he was kind to the women and he was gentle and he didn't cross any boundaries. He did his work and he did it well. And that's what was needed. I mean, at that time, the bare minimum is 
kind of what was needed. And he was actually kind. And also these women changed his worldview and his perspective. And I think he learned a lot from them and valued that time in his life. And Tia, anything to add about the interview itself? It was a pretty lively conversation. <laughs> you know, he, he was one of kind. And that's what you hope for when you start to get to know people. And that, you know, documentary filmmaking is a great privilege because it gives us a chance to get to know people out of the ordinary that we wouldn't normally come into contact with. We could have made a whole film about this guy because <laughs> he's a complicated person, very yeah. complicated person. He came into it for the money. That's why he was in the abortion business. It wasn't like the Janes. He wasn't doing it for selfless reasons. He wasn't doing it to save women's lives. He earned a good income from this and certainly more than he got as a construction worker. One of the women who gets an abortion from Mike through the Janes says it was the best medical experience I ever had. There's a real indictment of the male-dominated medical profession in this film, it seems. There are a lot of institutions that fell short that you document in this film, and that's clearly one of them. Can you talk about the medical establishment at this time? Doctors were subject to, to jail time, to prison time for doing abortions. So it's understandable that most doctors, most medical professionals stayed very far away from this. In some cases, the only doctors that were doing it were doing it for wealthy women who had their own private OBGYNs and could pay a, a good amount of money, you know, thousands of dollars, probably the equivalent of $10,000 today. But that really left low-income people, poor people out in the cold. So in some ways, yeah, the medical profession didn't lead the charge, but it wasn't their doing. It was the state legislators that created these bans. And the same is true today. Doctors will be subject and are in 14 states in this country today. They're subject to criminal penalties, to prosecution, to jail time for delivering this very simple medical care. And it's pretty outrageous. One doctor that we came across in this film, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, had been a civil rights leader in the South and had been chased out of the South by the Klan. He was a Black doctor and he set up a clinic in Chicago and he served the Southside community and he would do abortions on the side. And this was one resource that poor people in that part of town had. But he was busted two or three or four times. The Chicago police shut him down. So, you know, the Janes, while they weren't medical professionals, did have some doctors that were backup, that would give them some advice in, in the case of complications or would admit their patients into the emergency room if need be. So they had some layer of help from the medical community, but the medical community was not on the front lines as they are today. One of the most powerful moments in the film for me was seeing the Janes today holding the actual cards that were filled out to give just the basic information about potential clients, identifying information, phone numbers, how many weeks pregnant they were. And then in many cases, we see the word done scrawled across the card. Can you just talk about the power of these physical artifacts, such as the cards, and then later we see some of the instruments that were used to perform the abortions? We were sort of gifted a suitcase full of ephemera from the time the cards were in there. There was some correspondence, some photos, some instruments, and the doctor's list was in there, the notes that they took about different 
doctors or practitioners that were around in the city of Chicago and what their record was, whether it was violent, et cetera. So it wasn't clear until we got into the edit room how we would incorporate them into the film because documentaries are made in the edit room. But what we did decide right from the beginning of shooting these interviews is that we wanted to put the cards into the women's hands. That exactly what you're saying, that there is some power to that that you can't replicate. These cards were the proxy to the women that they helped. These were actual names, actual phone numbers. Some of them had notes on them with don't call after 10 or is very afraid of pain or anything that felt important to communicate. They would take messages off of an answering machine and write them down onto these cards. So it just felt like something we really wanted to try. And it really was quite transformative when we put them in the women's hands for them to see them again, hold these cards, these yellowed cards again, read these names and think about the women that they helped. You know, for some of the women, it was incredibly emotional. Some were a little bit more lively, like it was sort of this blast from the past, but it was powerful and transformative for certain and meaningful to us. We were so grateful to be able to see those. It was a huge responsibility. We blurred out the names. You know, we wanted to be very careful to protect the women. It was a huge responsibility to have these cards, but we wanted people to get an idea of this because there's no stand-in for that kind of archive, for that kind of ephemera. It's transformative for the audience as well, I think. As much as these women are 100% credible, there is something to be said for physical evidence. And there it is. You mentioned transformative. Another transformative moment is when the Janes have Mike teach them how to perform the abortions and they start doing them themselves. Can you talk about just how things deepened even more once they started performing the abortions? It was a controversial move internally and some women left the group. But it definitely was a turning point because when they found out that this guy, Mike, that they'd been working with wasn't in fact a doctor and yet had been doing these very compassionate, successful procedures over many months, they understood that they could do the same. And the benefit of their doing it was they could do more and they could offer the procedures for free. And this is something that was really, really necessary at that time because it was after 1970 when they made this decision. The summer of 1970, New York legalized abortion. So women with means were able to travel to New York State, to California, to Hawaii. Even before that, they were able to travel to Tijuana or England, some went to Japan. And so it left behind people who couldn't afford that. They not only couldn't afford the cost of a train ticket or a plane ticket, they just couldn't afford anything. So the Janes had a sliding scale and mostly they did a lot of procedures for free. When Mike was doing the procedures, they had to pay him. That was part of the deal. He wasn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He was making an income. But when they were doing it, they were volunteers. None of them had medical training. And so in some ways they were out of their depth. As Martha, one of the Janes admits, there was only so much she knew about the human body and about this procedure. And she didn't go into this as a frolic. None of them, I think, would have chosen to do this. And it's certainly not a call to action for people to learn how to do abortions on their own, but it was what they were left with. It's what they had to do because no one else 
with stepping forward. In fact, they had a really good track record. After the service closed, some doctors did a study and there were the same amount of complications that one would find in the world in the legal setting. But at the same time, they were young women. They shouldn't have had this burden imposed on them. Right. And many of them were damaged because of it. Emotionally, it was quite heavy to do this work day in, day out, hours and hours on end. One of the most striking interviews in the film is with the woman, Marie Lehner, who's a Jane, and she's a Black woman, and she's talking about how helping these women was a revolutionary act. And when the law changed in New York and abortion became legal, the clientele of Jane, it seems, did change. It became more working class and poor, and there were more women of color using the service. What were some of the stories from Marie, maybe that didn't make it into the film, about her experience as a Jane? Marie was such a rich, rich human being. She still is. She's extraordinary and kind of an unsung hero in the civil rights movement. And a lot of the stories that didn't make in the film were just about her work outside of the Janes. She had come from doing prison advocacy work in women's prisons at a time when women prisoners weren't much of a focus of the men's movement, of the anti-war movement, the student movement. During the Chicago the trial of the Chicago Eight was the liaison for Bobby Seale and the defense team. So she sat right behind Bobby Seale and communicated his wishes and his messages to Kunstler and the other lawyers. She was a badass. She later, after her tenure at the Janes, sued the Chicago police force. She was part of a lawsuit with a number of other leftist activists to force them to release the index cards and the surveillance photos and the notes and the research that the Chicago police had been keeping on student activists, anti-war activists and civil rights activists. And she was successful. And in fact, we used some of those Red Squad cards, they call them the Red Squad, the Intelligence Squad. You see some of those cards in the film and it was thanks to Marie and her bravery that these cards were even known and released. So she had a rich, rich history, and she went on to continue to do good work in this world. She grew up in the South Side. Her parents were un union folk, and she got into the Janes because she was committed to, like the others, to service. And in particular, she wanted to be of use to the women of color who were using the service. We do see in the film that on the fateful night of May 3rd, 1972, the Janes get caught. And it's amazing to have the story of this night from multiple perspectives. So we have the Janes perspective on being arrested. And then we have the perspective of Sergeant Ted O'Connor, <laughs> who was part of the team that arrested them. I think what makes having these multiple points of view so incredible is that Sergeant O'Connor and his colleagues had no interest in doing this. Mm -hmm. They were only there because basically their boss, who also had no interest in them doing this, his hand was forced, their hands were forced, and so they did it. So to me, this just speaks to the absurdity mm -hmm. and the surreal nature of these laws and what it actually forces good people to do. Yeah. What are your thoughts on what the police's side of this says about the broader issues here? His perspective was so interesting. 
it's such a nuance of the understanding of the ecosystem that was going on. He's an Irish Catholic homicide detective in Chicago. (laughs) By today's standards, you would think that he would be vehemently against abortion and waiting with bated breath to bust these women. But the fact of the matter is that the ecosystem was different then and that the Janes were doing a needed community service, that this was a gap in the healthcare system that was necessary and that they were filling. And that people that used the service included police officers, girlfriends of judges, wives of district attorneys, that it was everybody in the community that needed access to this service and that the Janes were providing the service for. So part of what came from Ted's interview and his inclusion in the film is understanding that aspect of it. And also the sort of don't ask, don't tell nature of it too, that there was so much of letting it sort of happen because we're not going to sanction it, but the Janes were keeping women from dying in the streets, quite literally. And there was a hands-off approach by law enforcement in the city. It wasn't unknown that they existed. They were putting posters up. So I think there was an allowance for the service. And when it came across their desk, they had to, as he says in the film, were just the guys with the law. They had to do something, but it certainly wasn't high on their list. And how we found him is that he had done a short NPR piece on it already. I mean, he, again, is an Irish Catholic homicide detective from Chicago. He likes to spin a yarn. So we did not have to twist his arm to tell this story and many other stories for us. He was happy to be included. So the Janes are charged with up to 110 years in jail for their quote unquote crimes. And they get off basically because in the interim of a trial, the Roe v. Wade verdict comes down and the charges are dismissed. Of course, now we're living in a new world where Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the Dobbs decision. And you're talking about this film. You're doing impact work around this film. How has the Dobbs decision changed your perspective on the events that you researched when you made the film and on how these women who were in the Janes are looking at the work that they did and how it's now going to be viewed in a different context? So I think the threat of this Supreme Court decision loomed over us the entire making of the film. And it loomed over the women that we spoke with. And I think that in large part was why they chose to come forward and tell the story to us with their faces and their voices on screen. Nonetheless, it was quite terrible and shocking and stunning really when the leak happened 50 years to the day of the anniversary of the bust of the Janes in 1972. You know, as much as we had expected it, given the contents of the leak, a month later when the actual Dobbs decision came down, I can speak for myself, I felt pretty numb and defeated. I guess I shared that feeling with millions of people across the country. But, you know, we picked ourselves up and we got out into the streets. And I think Emma and I, for our part, redoubled our efforts to make sure that this film was seen far and wide on HBO Max and HBO, and not just in this country, but throughout the world. 
as the U.S. is taking a step or two or three backwards, other countries are actually liberalizing abortion laws. So it's even more stunning. But as we saw this summer in Kansas, we're not taking this sitting down. The vast majority of people in this country believe that a woman should have the right to make this decision themselves and not have politicians tell them what to do. That crosses party lines, that crosses rural urban lines, that crosses race. So we hope the fall will see that echoed throughout the country and the elections that candidates that support enshrining abortion rights will be put into office or kept in office. I think what's really jarring to me is that knowing what we know about what the laws were like pre-Roe is that so many of these laws being enacted today are even worse than what we saw 50 years ago and 60 years ago and 70 years ago. They're worse. There's no exceptions for rape or incest in many cases. They're criminalizing doctors and women in some cases who cross state lines and subjecting them to prosecution. And in Texas, I think in Oklahoma, they're empowering vigilantes to go after women who've had abortions and the providers who serve them. So it's pretty dire. And it's not just affecting people who want to terminate pregnancies. It's affecting women who want to carry pregnancies to term, but have complications either with their own health or with the fetuses that they're carrying and can't get the appropriate medical care in some cases, in life-threatening situations. We're going to see a ripple effect of this decision when it comes to access to birth control and same-sex marriage equality, sodomy laws. I think it's all fair game for the extremists and the fundamentalists in this country. We just only hope that this film can make a difference in engaging the masses of people who are with us and getting them to take action. Emma, do you have any final thoughts I just would echo that we hope to move the needle in some small way with the film. This is our skill set. This is what we have to contribute. There's so many ways to contribute. And we're just incredibly grateful to these women and humbled that they allowed us to tell their story. And we hope that people take both things from the film, an understanding of what this country looked like last time. Women didn't have a right to make this decision for themselves. And also that you always have the ability to do the decent thing and to help one another and to, if you are able, put yourself on the line as much as you are able to do that and that we are in times where that it seems that is necessary. So we hope that the film is not just a horrifying portrait, but also a tool of inspiration. It's also entertaining. We forgot to mention. It is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, tried yeah. to no, tell the story. It's a caper story. It's a heist movie with women at the center. Yeah, they could have been robbing banks. They were sneaky. They were resourceful. They were outlaws. And this is what they chose to do. It was fun to get to know them. And I hope the audience has some fun in watching them do this work. Well, to take a quote from one of your Janes, I think it's Laura Kaplan. She said, we're going to do this. <laughs> so I want to thank you both for doing this, for making this film. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. So enjoy the conversation and your questions. Do you each have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem film that maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition that you'd like to spotlight? One of my favorite films in the last couple of years actually doesn't even have U.S. distribution. It's called In Search of Monsters. It was produced and directed by a German friend of mine, John Getz. They did get nominated for the Best Foreign Documentary Emmy. 
It follows the former Guantanamo detainee Mohamed Slahi as he searches for his torturers who are U.S.-based, the people who imprisoned him at Guantanamo, and really just wants to have a dialogue with him and offer some forgiveness. It's really kind of a bizarre rabbit hole that we go down looking at the humanity of this man who was imprisoned by the U.S. and how the act of imprisoning him really transformed his tortures for the worse. Emma, how about you? One sort of group of films that I was thinking about because they were so relevant to us was film as the early Kartemquin films. A lot of people don't know about them. The Maisels certainly got a lot of recognition for their verite work in the late 60s. But Kartemquin was doing it too. They made some really beautiful films, some meditations on tiny little ideas in life that are quite artful and really meaningful one of them inquiring nuns is just two young nuns out on the streets of Chicago asking people if they're happy. They're quite profound, those films, and their simplicity from really talented filmmakers that are lasting, obviously, since Cartemquin is still at it. So for us, in making The James, because they were Chicago-based, they were incredibly helpful to us and supportive to us and continue to be supportive to us. So that's one I would definitely lift up 